Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him and he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to grace, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Consider this mission state statement of a well-known university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. This was the mission statement of a school founded, founded in 1636. When it was founded, they employed uh, uniquely only Christian faculty, Christian professors. They emphasized uh, character formation among their students. They, uh, they were fundamentally committed to equipping ministers to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This is uh, what every diploma said, truth for Christ and the church. You've probably heard of this school. It's called Harvard University. Now, 80 years after it was founded, there was a group of New England pastors who 
became very concerned with the direction that Harvard was going. So they met with this wealthy philanthropist whose name was Eliu Yale. And they, with him, uh, asked for seed money to start a new university in 1718 that they called Yale University. Yale's motto, or what was put on their uh, diplomas, was not just truth, but light and truth. Now, both of those universities are a far cry today from the original vision of the founders. In fact, at the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Muller, who was a former president of Johns Hopkins University, bluntly stated, the bad news as is the university has become godless. And Larry, Larry Summers, who was the former president of Harvard, confessed, things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. What happened to Harvard and Yale is what's called mission drift, drifting from the original mission. It's not uncommon. It illustrates why leadership is so important. In Acts 20, Paul is giving his farewell address to this Ephesian church, but specifically to the elders of this Ephesian church. And he's giving this farewell address to say, I'm gone. You won't see me again. But here are my, my final words to you. And these are words that were spoken many, many centuries ago to the elders of the church in Ephesus, but they're words that are spoken today to the church and to elders of the church. And Paul's farewell address answers one very important question, and that is, why is gospel leadership so important? Why is leadership important? Why is gospel leadership so important? First, it's important because the church needs care. The church needs care. Two questions arise under this care. The first is, why does the church need care? And the second is, what is the nature of that care? Why does the church need care? Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood which he obtained with his own blood. The reason the church needs care is because the church has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. The church is precious. The church is precious and valuable. That's why it needs care. And when we say church, we're not talking building. The buildings aren't precious or even primarily the institution. It's not that the institution is precious. The church is the community of God's people. The community of God's people is precious and valuable. That's why it needs care. Consider the, the Hope Diamond in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. It's a 45-carat Deep blue diamond. 
that was extracted in the 17th century from India. Deep blue diamonds rarely exceed a couple carats in size. So this 45 carat deep blue diamond is incredibly precious and valuable. And that's why, and if you go to the Smithsonian in DC, you will see that it is cared for, protected, under constant watch. It's estimated the Hope Diamond is worth 200 to 350 million dollars. Now, contrast that with a cubic zirconia. Cubic zirconia is a gem that looks a lot like a diamond, but its market value is next to nothing. You can go online and you can purchase a cubic zirconia gemstone to put in a ring for about $12. Now, you'll never see a cubic zirconia cared for, protected, under constant watch in a national museum. The church is precious. The church is precious to God because he purchased his church with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, the infinite, valuable, precious blood of Jesus. And so the price paid for the church is infinitely valuable, which means the church is valuable and precious. The children of God, which is what is the church of God, is precious. That's why it needs care. It's because the church is precious. But this explains the other reason why the church needs care. It's because it's precious that it's also under attack. Because it's precious, it's also under attack. Verses 29 to 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This describes attack from the outside of the church that influences the inside of the church that eventually leads from attack from within the church. So Paul describes what's gonna happen. There's gonna be attack from the outside and then eventually attack from the inside because people speak what he says, twisted things. Now the word twisted here means perverted or crooked. So not straight. A twisted things is the speaking of untruth. There's a lack of, of truth that is attacking the church. Now in today's cultural climate, it's not so much the attack against truth, it's the attack against the claim that there's only one truth or one absolute truth. That's, that is the twisted things or the attack that is coming against this precious church of God is that there's a claim that there's all kinds of truths. In other words, your, and, and this would be kind of the motto of the day, right? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We're all good, as long as we can settle there. Right? In Oprah Winfrey's Lifetime Achievement Award acceptance speech in the 2018 Golden Globes, she said this, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth 
is the most powerful tool we all have. Now, on the surface, that, that sounds okay, but speaking your truth, not the truth, but your truth, and those two words, right, your truth, are two words that are, are baked, so baked into our world today that it's hard to even recognize how dangerous and destructive those two words are. The philosophy of your truth, and I'll just name one way, destroys families. When a father says that his truth is calling him away from his family to a new lover, to a new family, maybe even to a new gender. This philosophy of your truth is destructive to societies because what happens is it becomes your truth against somebody else's truth. Now there's a battle and void of reason, power is the one who's victorious. Power is what decides whose truth wins, right? Not reason. This your truth philosophy also puts incredible, incredible self-justifying burden on the individual. Brett McCracken says it this way. If we are all self-made objects whose destinies are wholly ours to discover and implement, life becomes a rat race of performative individuality. Live your truth autonomy is as exhausting as it is incoherent. Depression is the inevitable result and the inexorable counterpart of the human being who is her, his own sovereign. The church needs care because the church is precious and the church is under attack. Second question, what's the nature of that care? How does God provide this care for his precious children, for his church? Remember who Paul is speaking to here in Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul, in this address, is speaking to elders. And as he calls the elders of Ephesus to something, he uses his own life as a fellow elder as an example of what it looks like to care for the church. There's two striking features, two striking features of the care of an elder for the church. First, verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was ready to surrender his freedom, his rights, even his own very life to serve Jesus and to serve his people. 
And this wasn't just empty words coming out of Paul. Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Just like when Paul was in Corinth, here he's describing taking up his tent-making trade, that he worked as a tent maker instead of going out and support raising or asking for money, even though he had every right to do so. It would not have been wrong, and he did it in, throughout his career in different places. It was not wrong for Paul to ask for money or to raise support, but if Paul sensed that by going out to raise support, he would put any kind of stumbling block in front of the gospel, he gave up that right. He said, I will give up that right as long as the gospel of Jesus Christ moves forward without a stumbling block. So Paul gave up his rights. For Paul, it wasn't life or death that mattered most. It wasn't even comfort or discomfort that mattered most. It was Philippians 1 that Christ would be magnified in his body, whether by life or death. That was what mattered most to Paul. Christ will be magnified, and if anything's gonna get in the way of that, I will let it go. I will give up that right. I will give up that freedom. The church is cared for by elders who are selfless, who give up their rights, who give up their freedoms, who give up their comfort. But second, the second striking feature we see here about the elders and what they're called to is in two verses. First, verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. With tears. And with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Then again in verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. When we talk about truth and sound doctrine coming from Paul's lips, we go, well, abs obviously, absolutely. But we see here the softer side of Paul, that he empathized with those he was ministering to, that he empathized with them as he brought truth and as he brought sound doctrine. He wept with those who wept and what's so powerful here is that Paul always came with truth and doctrine, but Paul came with weeping with empathy because sound tr truth and sound doctrine, apart from empathy, is destructive. Truth and sound doctrine, apart from empathy, is destructive. Have you ever experienced a doctor who is excellent at diagnosing the problem, excellent at prescribing the solution, but who has awful bedside manners? Or let me give you the converse of that. Have you ever experienced a doctor that has amazing bedside manners? I mean, just comforts you and weeps with you and is, but is woefully insufficient at diagnosing the problem or prescribing a solution? The care of the church should look more like an excellent doctor with excellent bedside manners 
where truth and doctrine is accompanied with empathy and compassion. And yet we, we, we feel like those two almost have to be an either or. It's an either or. It's I'm going to express empathy and compassion, but I'm going to hold back on truth and doctrine because it's offensive. Or I'm going to come with truth and doctrine and no empathy and compassion because I don't ever want to think that I'm condoning something or they think I'm condoning something. We act like truth and empathy are almost like opposite ends of the pendulum swing. Two extremes, and somehow we got to get this pendulum to come to the middle and find this compromised middle as if truth and empathy are incompatible. They're not. Truth is empathetic. And empathy is truthful. That's the beauty of the care that the church is to receive from elders who are selfless and empathetic. Christ Church East. Don't miss the gift that God has given you. You have amazing elders at this church. They are, I have served at a number of churches through the years. And I can tell you that these men here are some of the most humble, loving, caring, and yet truthful elders I have served under. And I can tell you that in the darkest times of our family, that Kim and I and our family have received that care and it's been amazing. Now, they're not perfect. Far from it. Nobody is. But they love Jesus, and they love this church. Honor them. Follow them as they submit to Christ and follow Christ. Why is gospel leadership so important? Because the church needs care. And second, because the church needs Jesus. On the heels of what I just said, it'd be very easy to elevate the elders to some status that's, that's not good or to treat them as some, something they're not. What's beautiful here is as Paul addresses these elders in Ephesus he reminds them of their own need. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. There seems to be a contradiction here between verse 28 and verse 24. Verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. But now in verse 28, he says, elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. Which is it? Well, it's not a contradiction. These verses complement one another. 
What Paul is saying is to the elders, you cannot give up your freedom. You cannot give up your rights. You cannot give up your comfort unless you are walking with Christ and dependent upon Christ. Because in and of yourself, you would never give up your rights. In and of yourself, you'd never give up comfort. You'd never give up freedom. Only in submission to Christ can you do those things. And so pay attention to yourself is pay attention to your walk with Christ so that you can give up your rights and your freedom. If you don't pay attention to yourself and your walk with Christ, then your care for others will fall into one of two ditches, either the ditch of control or the ditch of empty principles. In the ditch of control, you take on the Messiah complex. In the ditch of control, you believe that you can change someone. And that if they don't cooperate with your counsel, if you're in the ditch of control, you grow impatient. And then you begin to think, take, take things personally. And then you might even get to the point of manipulating to try to get what you want out of that person. That's what happens in the ditch of control. The ditch of empty principles in that ditch, you offer that person platitudes and tips to get them out of the hole. But these tips and these platitudes are divorced from Christ. There's nothing wrong with principles in and of themselves, but principles that are divorced from Christ are empty. They don't lead to change. Maybe temporarily they will, but they don't bring any lasting change. In both of these ditches, you fail to lead people to Jesus. because you yourself are probably not moving towards Jesus. You will take people who you are caring for to the fountain you are drinking from, whether it's Christ or something else. You will take them to that fountain. And so if you're not paying careful attention to yourself and to your walk with Christ, and you fall into one of these ditches of control or empty principles, you, you will take people to those fountains, which is not Jesus. If the church needs Jesus, then the elders who are part of the church need Jesus. And if the church needs Jesus, then what's the elder's role? What is the elder's role? There's a phrase that gets repeated over and over in Paul's address to these Ephesian elders. It's said differently, but it's getting at the same exact point. Verses 20 to 21. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. That means that Paul was, was preaching in the large worship gathering, and then he was in houses, sharing the truth as well, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God 
and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, declaring and teaching people to turn from sin and to turn towards Jesus. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That just means that, that Paul gave him the whole word of God. He, he didn't pick and choose. He gave him the hard parts that there were to swallow. He gave him the easier parts that were there to swallow. He gave him the whole word of God. And then verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, I set you before God and the word of his grace and his word will build you up and, here's the key, give you the inheritance. What's the inheritance? It's Jesus Christ. Paul says, I gave you the word of grace that would give you Jesus. All three of those phrases that we just looked at, are all about bringing people before Jesus. We see this powerfully illustrated in the Gospels when over and over you will see friends take the lame and the crippled and they come and they put them before Jesus. Why? Because that's the only place they can find healing. They understood the only healing and transformation that can happen comes through Jesus. So they would carry people and put them in front of Jesus. That's the role of an elder. An elder is to carry people and put them in front of Jesus. And I would broaden it to say that is the role of any believer who's caring for someone, is to take that person and put them before Jesus. Recently, I had a conversation with a man who's going through a nasty divorce. It's in the courts, trying to figure out custody of the children, trying to figure out finances. On top of that, this man feels as though church leadership has really wronged him, his side of things, especially recently. He feels like they've, they've treated him inconsistently and unjustly. And so he, he said, I'm compiling a list of things they have done that have been wrong. And at some point, I wanna bring it to them to show them how they're wrong. And he said to me, he said, what should I do? He said, how, how should I how, how do I find the balance between not ignoring what I see is unjust and yet not getting in a fight over it? I could have given him some principles and counsel on how to write this email. I could have given him some verbiage that would be truthful but loving and let's strike the balance in this email, appreciative but hey, I'm concerned. I could have helped him kind of construct this balanced email. Or I could have said, hey, listen, before you meet with them, breathe deeply 
count to 10. I could have given him some behavioral techniques of how to handle the situation. And I didn't do that. I said, I want you to read and reflect on the trials of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus' trial was the most unjust trial in the history of the world. And yet he remained silent. Jesus could have poked all kinds of holes in his multiple trials before he was crucified. He remained silent because he was about to bury injustice on the cross and raise from the dead victorious. And so I said to this man, I want you to reflect on that. And as you rest in Christ, I want you to find the power to not have to fight and to not have to win the argument and to not have to be right because Christ has already won and is victorious. And as I said those words to him, he started to weep. And you say, wow, Keith, you gave him really good counsel. I didn't give him good counsel. I just... I pointed him to and took him to Jesus. And in the presence of Jesus, he melted and he softened and he found hope for this journey that he's on through this divorce. It's the difference between helping someone win the argument and helping one understand that they don't have to win the argument. You don't have to be right. You have to understand that you don't have to be right. Only in the presence of Jesus do you have the power to not have to be right. Only in the presence of Jesus do you not have to win the argument. May we as a church, pastors, staff, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, members, may we be a church that takes one another to Jesus. And in the presence of Jesus, find healing and find comfort and find transformation. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us forgive us for treating your church as not precious? Forgive us for forgetting the, the beautiful truth that your church, your children, the community of your children is precious and valuable. And Father, 
forgive us for not honoring those who lead us inside the church, outside the church, for, for being independent and autonomous. Father, only in the presence of your son, Jesus, do we not have to be right? Do we not have to win the argument? Only in the presence of your son, Jesus, can we give up our rights and give up our freedoms and give up our comforts for the sake of your gospel and for the sake of your people. Father, would you make us a church that doesn't offer empty platitudes and empty principles to people to get out of the hole they're in, would you make us a church that brings people to your son, Jesus, and in his presence to find healing and to find rest? And Father, as we close in singing to you, by your spirit, give us power to lift our voices in gratitude for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.